I you said the the hello and welcome to the Antifada thing is good. I mean, I thought well. I thought so, but apparently unrest is no longer best, and up is down, left is right. <laughs> Fucking gamers are politicians. I don't even know what to think anymore. Yeah, politicians are gamers. Oh boy, I mean, <laughs> as Virgil would say, it is the greatest game of all. <laughs> The darkest, most cursed game. It makes Resident Evil look like a uh, look like Farmville. Oh, I mean, speaking of which, I don't know if I'm a, maybe I don't want to step on my own toes. I don't know. I uh, I'm involved with an eco-socialist video game. It's kind of like a uh, socialist Farmville. It's kind of cool. Oh it's no way! It's called The Promised Land. It's coming out um, soon. <laughs> I had, is it like a computer game or a PlayStation game or an app game? Uh, I played it on my computer. We did a little beta testing. Um, and if I'm not supposed to say anything about it, we will cut this out later. But I, they might be happy to have me like tease it a little. So what's the point of the game? Um, it's like very much my speed. So you kind of walk around. You make It's like a kind of an old old timey looking like eight bit looking kind of thing kind of video game okay okay it's like zelda on uh game boy or something but it's very colorful and you just like walk around and grow plants and like vibe and shit and it's not really oh, yeah. competitive although i've invited boy jamie to be on the board with me and i'm sure he will figure out a way to make it competitive so it is um, this this eco socialist video game imagines a future where like the eco socialist revolution already happened and now you're just like vibing with the earth and in like the material community of communism. Um, maybe I honestly I haven't uh, I haven't got all the details yet, but it does see it's like a utopian world. So yes, yes, but there are still like things that you have to you have to like buy seeds with coins and stuff. So maybe it's Ugh. maybe it's like market socialism. Ugh, it's a transitional stage, but better than the one <laughs> we, we have now. We've been really getting into it online with market socialists recently. Oh and, my uh, god! And other Twitch streamers, but maybe we could talk about that uh, on the Twitch stream sometime. Yeah, you got to fight fire with fire. And you also have to keep the wor- the world separate. You know, we can't let uh, our new soft launch of the Twitch channel overtake our podcast. So we only talk about Twitch on the podcast. Yeah, and we no. can't let vice versa happen either. It's important to keep a, a bit of separation between those worlds. Uh, well, speaking of which, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, I'm going to promote our Twitch. Uh, we have a Twitch stream planned for tonight. If you're listening to this on Wednesday uh, at seven o'clock with um, Tony Boswell for Binion Death Cult. Yeah. And we're currently in soft launch mode right now. But I trust you, the people listening to this podcast, to check it out and not be too mean. <laughs> That's right. And um, there is a, also a chance, too, that um, we're going to edit those down, the Twitch streams, and we're going to put them as patron, patron bonuses and stuff like that. We have a lot of cool projects that we're working on, and the soft launch will be going on for... I don't know, two, three, four weeks, and then we have some really exciting things planned when uh, we actually make this thing happen. Yes, we do. Um, can I can I start with an uh, an announcement? Sure. All right. Um, people might have heard the awful news um, on the Antifada and elsewhere 
about our friend uh, Dick, Millions of Dead Landlords, uh, Dick Afrenic from Twitter, appeared on a couple of our episodes, really smart, brilliant political economist and uh, organizer. I'd just like to share a short update from um, from his partner, who's uh, who wanted let, to let everybody know how he's doing. He says, she says, as most of you know, Richard is being held without bond at an ICE facility due to charges regarding BLM protests. His lawyer has filed a motion for bond reconsideration, but we don't know when the courts will get to it, especially with the upcoming holidays. We have some hope but are not expecting good news because the feds are very motivated to keep Richard detained indefinitely as his time period is designate is designed to isolate and weaken a defendant before trial. So they are more likely to take a plea deal. Speaking of trial, the federal courts, his is a federal case have been shut down since that brief time. America kind of honored quarantine in March, whenever they resume and nobody knows when, they will, will begin with the people who have been waiting and go chronologically. So, yeah, it could be anywhere from months to years until the trial. If he's not granted bond, he'll be stuck at ICE the entire time. Not proven guilty, just waiting. The only plus side is if he does end up with a sentence, his time in detainment will count towards it. He's met plenty of people in there uh who have pretty much served their eventual sentence prior to trial. Detainment lasting years is super common. He's learning a lot from those who have had more experience within the judicial system about what to expect. We will be tied up for a long time with this legal process. In the meantime, Dick's ability to stay in touch with loved ones is limited to only 10 numbers a month. Phone calls cost 21 cents a minute. Video calls 35 cents a minute. Being incarcerated is costly as hell. As we fight the whack charges, we promise any money donated to Richard's support will be widely, wisely utilized and immensely appreciated. People can send donations to Atlanta Solidarity Fund. That's ATL Sol Fund on Twitter. Uh, and that would be amazing. And then there's also a couple of um, Venmo links, but we can put those in the description. But most importantly, at the end of the statement, it talks about how um, how uplifted Dick always is to get letters from people on the outside, from friends of his, people who he knows. And then obviously he loves the Antifada family as they love him back. So if you're interested, and it would be very amazing of you to do so you can send an email to write to dick at protonmail.com and the solidarity fund people will print that letter out print the email out and then we'll give it to him and he promises to write back although he's awesomely had a, got a lot of letters so it might be a while but he will get back to you and it's uh whatever you can do in this time would be great and uh, he'd love to hear from each and every one of you yeah, and we'll put links to all that in the episode description. It's, uh, ooh, how do we transition out of that? Fucking I, prayers up for ooh. Dick. We are, uh, we're all, we're all pulling for him. And I think he's going to come out of, come out the other end of this. Um, but yeah, it's a scary, it's a right. scary time. It's a scary time, but the support of, um, of everybody. Uh, means everything to him so the best thing we could do right now is uh keep in touch with him and keep him in our thoughts and uh 
you know, donate any disposable income that you might have to his solidarity fund, which goes to his legal defense and those charges for phone calls and commissary and stuff to write with. So I don't know if there's a good transition out of that. Let's just go. Let's just go for it. Word. Um, Um, (laughs) In other news, uh, you know what? I feel like I have to do a little housekeeping, too, because it was a few months ago when we said that we had T-shirts to sell to people. And I've got them sitting in my house right now. We've received a number of emails from people who want shirts. Um, it's a little confusing because, like, we might need to order more shirts to fulfill them all. I don't know. I haven't even opened up the bag, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and it, it's kind of on me because it was my idea to do the shirts another round of them in the first place but it's also on the boys because they were like well if you want to do it that's fine but we're not going to help you so there would not be shirts happening if it weren't for me <laughs> however i may have pro- over promised and under delivered but i'm going to get to it i swear shirts are going to come out she swears so sorry <laughs> sorry i suck but um <laughs> They like your your emails did not go down a black hole like we have them. We have the information. So Well, now after about ten minutes of administrative stuff and house cleaning and uh pleas for donations to bail funds, let's start talking about the news. We've got another nice, loose, casual great news episode just the two of us we're gonna be talking about recent things that happen and what we expect to happen in coming days and weeks yeah we're good we're just gonna vibe like i gotta say the response to our last vibe episode was pretty good um i was feeling kind of low energy and depressed as i noted but um it turns out everyone else is depressed too so they found that very relatable Yeah. yeah 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 i mean uh Parasocial relationships are kind of corny, but uh, they're really important in a global pandemic where you can't really go outside much, can't really hang out with your friends, certainly can't go to bars and restaurants and stuff. So if we can fill that little niche in people's lives for like an hour a week, that's great. Yep. And uh, I feel like I do. I always do this where I like as soon as I admit that I'm depressed, I immediately pivot to what the solution is. Because Mm. I am just a problem solver. But, you know, if I didn't make it clear in the last episode, it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to get discouraged sometimes. Like, what we're trying to do here is very hard. And shit is very fucked up. It's very fucked up. And I guess that brings us to, like, our first news item, which is the next wave is here. Like, it's coming, but the next wave of the pandemic is definitely here as we sit in the uh, first week of December. um, We just had the Thanksgiving holiday and tons of people went uh, to travel and go see their families, either contracted or gave people uh, the plague. And then they went back to where they live. And then now, right as the Thanksgiving bump is coming, we're about to have Christmas holiday when tens of millions of people are going to go do the same exact thing and uh, I, I suspect that January and February are going to be pretty dark, dark months for everybody. Yeah. And well, it's OK, though, because uh, Joe Biden won the election and oh, he yeah. believes in science. He says it all the yeah. time. So it must be true. And he understands. He hears us. He sees us. 
and we're valid. So I think everything is going to be fine. Nancy Pelosi said so. Well, that and 275 will get me a subway ride. Did- I'm not sure I can pay rent in uh, in science believing or understanding, but that's American politics, right? Like, did, did you hear this shit? Like, I kind of want to play it for you. I know you don't um, really pay attention to these people, but it is pretty egregious. What, the Nancy Pelosi thing where she was defending getting the smaller stimulus? Yeah. Perhaps you missed what I said earlier. Joe Biden committed to ending and crushing the virus and having a Build a Better America initiative, Big Back Better, a vaccine, answer to our prayers, an answer to our prayers of 95% effectiveness in terms of Pfizer and Moderna, and there may be others uh, coming forward. Now that makes That is a total game changer a new president, and a vaccine. So th- there's nothing to... Co- th- these are different. What, what was then before was not more of this. This is, has simplicity. It's what we've had yeah. in our bills. Yeah, yeah. It's she said that it's fine. Uh, this thing, this smaller okay bill now, is fine because, because we, have we have a, a new president, president and a, a vaccine. President now, the vaccine will probably take many months to become available to uh, people who are not in like first in line. And the new president, I don't really see what bearing that has on anything. Yeah, no, no. Um, It was heartwarming. There was a uh, story that came out of the UK where they did the first vaccine for a woman, like a 90 year old woman. And I have to say that that rose my morale a, a bit. Because, like, people actually are getting vaccinated now. It's, like, probably going to take, like, 6, 8, 12 months for, like, the vaccine to get to us plebeians. But at least in, like, a photo op fashion, there are people getting the actual vaccine at this time. But, you know, the politics of that are going to be completely insane. Uh, yeah, they will. Uh, shout out to Bernie for not voting for this, uh, this garbage. Uh, he said in a tweet... The American people need help and they need help now. That means any COVID-19 relief deal must include $1,200 direct payments to the working class. No get-out-of-jail-free card to corporations that put the lives of their workers and customers at risk. Boom. Hey, I'll take it. So T.O. Bernie is still out there fighting the good fight. But yes, you are correct. The politics of the vaccine are going to be insane in this country. Like, Like, can you even envision a scenario where uh, rich people don't figure out a way to jump the line? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I cannot imagine that. It's like similar to that movie Contagion, although hopefully not as bad as Contagion because in Contagion there's like riots and shit in order to get the vaccine. I'm not sure that it's going to be that bad, but it's going to be, how should we say, a lot of special interests get it before yeah. we do. There was a kind of clickbaity headline that was going around Twitter uh, saying that uh, Wall Street and banking workers were going to get the vaccine first. Yeah, because they're, they're essential be, workers. Because they're essential workers. And it sounds very scandalous, but if you go to the Market Watch uh, article, it just says that like banks have asked the authorities to like maybe ask the CDC maybe to make bank tellers, um, you know, people on the front lines like working in retail banks. Uh, first in line for the vaccine. It makes it sound lo- though that like it's actually literally like Wall Street 
like scum who are going to be getting it first. But like, even though it's not the worst case scenario of Wall Street scum, like, no, I think they are. I think they are trying to conflate the two and argue that they're both just bankers. Yeah, well, regardless, and you might you might be right about that. Um, The politics are going to suck in this. It's going to be like, um, you know, obviously the rich and the politicians getting it first and the people who need it most who are front frontline healthcare workers and the elderly and immunocompromised people. I'm not sure they even have a plan on how they're going to distribute it to everybody in the United States, let alone the world. It's going to be a public-private partnership. It's going to be great. You love to see it. Um, but you mentioned the movie Contagion, um, and I have not actually seen it. I probably should, but oh, it's frighteningly, frighteningly accurate. I heard it comes out from the. I heard from. I want to say our friend Aaron was talking about it. Maybe on Trailbillies, like that. The society in Contagion is much more high functioning than the one we have now. <laughs> Like, there's oh, actually so a coordinated uh, government response that we just have not seen. Well, yeah, and it was it was under the Obama years that that came out. So I was having this argument with people over Twitter about how much um, how much of the pandemic response was like a, a choice, a series of bad choices made by politicians and how much of it was like baked in. You know, to just the way American political economy works. And how much and of it was individual failures because you're all a bunch of bad people. You still have to go to work, but you can't see your families. This is the most insane, maddening liberal take of all where it's like just complete moral outrage towards regular ass people who, sure, they might not be wearing a mask in a situation that they should, but we have all been abandoned by everybody and forced to continue to make profits like getting on your moral high horse about uh masks might feel really good but it's like i hate to say it virtue signaling yeah word Uh, this is not i mean yes everyone should wear a mask obviously but this is not the kind of thing that can be solved um via ground up individual personal responsibility like we need it on the level of policy and sometimes some liberals seem to understand that and other ones, maybe not so much. But like it doesn't have to be like this. Like I forget no. who I was talking about the other day who was like probably Sam, who was like mad that people were going to go see their families at Thanksgiving and it's going to be all their fault when the second wave comes. I'm like, th- there are things the government could do to stop that. Like we should get Sophie on actually, our friend who moved to Australia uh, to talk mm. about what it's like to be in a functioning society that actually yeah. dealt with the virus. Because, like, uh, I re- she was talking the other day. Like, she they're not allowed to go, like, more than a mile from their house. And she, uh. like, for, for the first time, that was lifted. And she got to, like, go somewhere. And she's really stoked about it. Like, there, you, you don't have to be an authoritarian government like China uh, to make China, China to make certain <laughs> prohibitions to deal with the virus, like they're doing it everywhere. And by the way, that yeah. was a joke, so don't get mad at me, tankies. <laughs> no, no, that's exactly it. Like the question, I guess, is though, like if this had happened under Obama, or even if it had happened under Bush, would there have been a market difference in the uh, not just the policies but the reaction to it? I feel like. Maybe under Bush, 
Like things were kind of crazy. You had the tea party and you had like the war going on and tensions were really high. But I think a plan could have been put in place at that point. Like they were, it was on their radar and they could have kept it maybe to like a hundred thousand deaths. Certainly if Clinton became president, they would have done some other things and it maybe would have been like a hundred and twenty thousand deaths by now instead of like, uh, 200, 240,000 deaths. So like, I think though America was like uniquely ill prepared for this, not just from a governmental level. We know that, you know, Trump and his people just like asset stripped the entire fucking government, but also just from like a societal perspective where if it was Clinton and she tried to put these, you could call them draconian measures in place, you would have had like 20, 30, 40% of people who would have like absolutely refused on the grounds of government tyranny to do anything. And you certainly would have had small, medium-sized, and large capitalists who refuse to abide by the shutdown, similar to what we're seeing today all across the country. So America's just kind of like particularly ill-equipped, I think, to, to face the sort of collective responsibility that this represents. Well, there has to be two parts to the shutdown, right? Like, you have to do a, shut, a full shutdown, none of this garbage where bars could be open before 10 o'clock but not after. And then, also very important... You have to give people and businesses money so that they can just chill and not go anywhere and not spread the virus. And people do not trust the government to do the second part. So as I've said, and like, I I don't fucking trust the government to do the second part. Like, you really think a Hillary Clinton would give people the kind? I mean, they call it stimulus, but it's actually just like money so you can eat. You really think that a a Clinton administration or uh, I'm sorry, a Biden administration is going to give people what they need in order to keep from being evicted and put food on the table? That would be a moral hazard, as they call it, right? Yeah, no, people don't want a handout. They don't. They, they just hand up. They just want someone to listen to their problems and pretend like they care. <laughs> and understand what it was like to see your uh, loved one die in a hospital alone by uh, a Skype call or something like yeah. that. Yeah. At least they understand, right? Yeah. Oh, and actually, I saw a video the other day of a guy. God, now I'm, I'm going to fuck this up. I think he was a small business owner on Staten Island. And he was not part of these uh, ridiculous... Staten Island autonomous zone protests (laughs) that I think you talked about the other night on Twitch. He wasn't one of the people yelling like, I want a cocktail or whatever. He wasn't from Max Bar. But he was like, he seemed like a little bit right wing the way he was talking, but he came around to a very intelligent left wing position, which was, um, yes, I would like to shut down if the government gives us money. To shut down and chill and not go broke, I w- of course I would do that, but they're not doing it, so I need to stay open. And like, it- it's hard to disaggregate that really legitimate fear from the people who are just doing like weird culture war. I want to consume nonsense, yeah. but it's definitely it comes in from there. a real place. It yeah. comes from a real place. It's like I said this when the pandemic started. It's not just that. We have a society with wage labor. We have a wage labor society. So it's not just that you go to work to like make money, to pay your bills, you know, whether you're able to do that on what you make or not is is an open question, right? But because our 
society is based upon wage labor and profits, that's the thing that brings so many people together to even have a sense of belonging uh, and a sense of like, quote unquote, community is the workplace. You know, it's also where people go and socialize probably more than anything else. When they go home, they maybe watch like YouTube or TV. Maybe they go out like a night or two a week. Oh, they socialize wage labor, with us. Wage labor, not, not our people. I'm talking about <laughs> people in general. Wage labor is not just like an economic condition. It's also the like structuring principle of social life. So when you take that away from people and you give them no money, then society really starts to fray at the edges because what do people do with themselves if not work? Like we like to say, oh, well, they'll take up hobbies. They'll like become renaissance people. They'll like do all sorts of things. But but honestly, do we even know how to live in a world where we don't have to work? I'm not sure we do, well, especially not in America. It's probably easier if you are not worried about getting evicted from your house which uh, I saw the map. The map is very concerning to me. The, yeah. like the, the places where, like, you know, it's a map of the U.S. and it shows you, like, the percentages of people who are behind on their rent and will be still when the eviction courts reopen. And uh, yeah. apparently the money, the COVID relief money is running out uh, right in time for Christmas. So that's nice. There's... um. There are these theories that I see floated around about how they're not quite like virus denialists. Like those don't really exist on the quote unquote left. But what they do instead is they say like the virus is real. However, the lockdown and all the measures taking place are a conspiracy, a scheme by capital in order to become more powerful and move money upwards. Right. Mm. That like capital is using this crisis in order to like you know, become even more powerful. And there's an element of truth to that, but but that's not the reason why capital is getting so strong and the rich are getting so much richer. It's because every crisis under capitalism from the very beginning was an impediment to capitalist growth, but it was also an opportunity for capital to, capital to restructure itself. And when we, you, you live in a capitalist society where you have a ruling class, the bourgeoisie who are capitalists, of course, when there's a crisis, they who run the society are going to end up on top. So it's not a conspiracy that they're doing better. It's that they run everything. And of course, they're going to arrogate all sorts of powers and they're going to arrogate all sorts of monies and, and power to themselves because that's what they do under capitalism. This is a normal crisis. Every crisis. Look what happened in two. 2008, all of these individual homeowners in America uh, lost their homes. Millions of people lost their jobs, but the banks were made whole. Like that's not an accident and that's not unique to 2008 or to the pandemic. That's just what happens. Capital is finding a new way right now in this local and also this global scale to like move production forward on its own terms. So it's not a conspiracy. We shouldn't be surprised that like the people who rule are uh, getting even more powerful coming out of that. I don't know. That's a little pet peeve I had seeing that yeah. discourse. I, I don't think that capital really cares one way or another if we have a shutdown or a full shutdown or a partial shutdown or whatever because they're going to come out on top no matter what. Yeah. Um, this is but, called disaster capitalism. We've seen yep. this in natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria, and now we're seeing it with this, which is – you can you can start to see the outlines of like uh, a new restructured regime of accumulation in the United States, and this is why people are shocked that um, 
the government and uh, business sector is just letting like millions of small businesses go underwater right now. I think you can see the outlines of a situation where all of like like a large portion of the bourgeoisie in the United States, small shop owners and shit, are essentially liquidated by this crisis, right? They end up falling into the ranks of the working class. Those businesses and those jobs that existed go away. But like, that's not a problem for capitalism in general. That's a problem for particular capitalists, right? It's not that the politicians want it, but this gives the opportunity now. And you see this in a place like New York City, where chains are starting to grow and you have more and more big box stores and services and retail are larger and larger to simply have a wave of monopolization and uh, consolidation across like the service industry and sector. Like Amazon is doing so well right now because they were the smart, plucky capitalist enterprise that was able to swoop in and, and, and take the best advantage of this thing. The future, as it looks in the medium term right now, is a very different kind of capitalist order. One in which like this fig leaf that existed of becoming an entrepreneur, becoming a small business owner, gets even harder than it was before. And maybe the ideological effect that that has on Americans might change, might wear off a little bit when no longer can you like become a shop owner, become petty bourgeoisie quite so easy. It's going to be yeah. it's going to be different. Well, I I am concerned about the uh, the political impact on the petty bourgeoisie. Because oh, they're going to go nuts. Historically <laughs> speaking, when the petty bourgeoisie feel uh, their position threatened in society and are afraid of falling in, back into the proletariat, they don't necessarily become socialists. No, they don't necessarily take it very well. So I am a bit concerned. Like, it seems like there are openings there, perhaps, as more and more people become proletarianized. But I also worry how it's going to play out because we've seen it before. I mean, has there ever been a, 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 a movement based in the petty bourgeoisie that has gone uh, f in favor of socialism and against uh, capitalism and the forces of reaction? Uh, I mean, sectors have in different revolutionary moments in the past, for sure. But I think right now, because the the petty bourgeoisie, at least canonically, is like this intermediate class that can break either which way towards the bourgeoisie or for the proletariat. But given the state of politics in the United States, I see absolutely no indication that the petty bourgeoisie, which are largely either like uh, cloying shit libs who only mm -hmm. care about like dumb identity politics stuff or psychopathic MAGA people. I mean, they're both the problem. I don't see either of them breaking into like a conscious anti-capitalist type politics. Maybe like you saw on that Staten Island Chaz thing, there is a sort of like unconscious, like submerged sort of like desire for direct action and community and like this weird quasi anarchistic way that people then like can only vocalize in terms of civic nationalism and in mm. terms of like property rights. Mm. But that in itself is dangerous too, because as our episode will come out about um, Holocaust denial, <laughs> you can be anti-bourgeois and not be anti-capitalist. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can the be, petty bourgeois. You can be anti-liberal and not be anti-capitalist. Yeah. You can become all those scary things that we know about in history that end up very badly for everybody. Folks, we're talking about the F word. Oh, dear. How, well, how we'll, dare you? We'll keep you. an eye on it. 
Uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that that fascism yeah, problem. It's yeah. not here yet. Uh, yeah, I I'm particularly concerned. I mean, fuck small business tyrants, obviously, but I am concerned for all of my friends who work in the service sector here in New York. Oh, and God, yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. I do know a few of the owners of one particular spot that I went. Um, that It was actually ground zero for COVID in, uh, in North yeah. Brooklyn, in Bushwick. It was um, that place, TVI. We are friends with some of the owners. I've we know got TVI on me. Yeah, we know, TVI. we know Jonathan. We love Jonathan. He's the only good um, small business tyrant, I think. The only good petty bourgeois. Yeah. Uh, but, like, people got mad at me because I talked about it on Majority Report. I went to brunch the other day at oh, TVI. Oh, wow. You're back to brunch. Biden <laughs> won. You're back to yeah, brunch. exactly. Exactly. That's uh, exactly what Matt Binder said to me. So, real original. But, um, <laughs> like, I went there. They had outdoor seats. Uh, there weren't a lot of people there. Uh, I went there with boy Jamie. They had some nice heaters. We had some breakfast tacos kind of bundled up for that and, uh, you know, gave a nice tip to our server who was actually in a cool band that has played my Halloween parties before. And we this listened. is the most North Brooklyn story I've ever heard in my life. They had like a really good post-punk soundtrack and we had like goth brunch and people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, dude, like if people don't eat there, it's going to close. And then none of my friends will have jobs. So it's really, it's hard to know what to do in that scenario, but I don't feel bad for doing that. It's it's impossible to do anything really, because again, without any government stimulus to like keep those servers and bartenders and barbacks like alive in the meantime, they have to work and like, you know, it's, it's not a revolutionary thing. It's, it's not like we don't talk, we can't talk about in terms of like a communist horizon but certainly like the government giving small businesses money to stay open like is better quality of life for all of us in a place like brooklyn or any other like large city in the united states or around the world where like one of the main draws for actually living in a city is having like cool stuff to go to and like nice places to go eat and bars and shit like that that's again why this restructuring is like really monumental because when all these things like fall by the wayside, when all these jobs and all these uh, places, uh, these shops close, like what's the point of a city anymore? You've had this mass drive towards urbanization for the last 40 years. Like what happens when the, the like entry level jobs go away, when decent like service jobs go away. And when, as we've seen already, the bourgeoisie goes away, like you've had hundreds of thousands of, rich people leave New York City to go buy stuff in the suburbs and there's no indication that they're coming back. Yeah. And the rent is going down a little bit, I will say, but not enough. It's still like yeah. way too fucking high. You know, at least in the 1970s you could get like a really big apartment for not very much money. This is like the worst of both worlds, you know? Yeah. It's like stag- a, stagflation. Uh... Is that stagflation? No, probably not. But it's just no, like two it's, it's two bad things happening at once. <laughs> badflation. Yeah. I call it badflation. Yeah. Is that a dialectic? I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Um There there's a there's an article I didn't put it on the sheet, but I can mention it. I have it in front of me here. 
It's uh, by OPB. I don't know what that is. It sounds like some cop shit, but it's like it looks like a news thing. It says migration to booming, quote, Zoom towns in Pacific Northwest sends home prices into overdrive. So it goes on by this is by Tom Bance. This is from December 7th. You can add a new term to your lexicon, Zoom towns. These are scenic places experiencing a surge of house hunters. Booming demand comes from workers freed by the pandemic to work from home long term. And then it talks about Wait. Bend, Oregon. Isn't that just the excerpts? I just listened to Mike Davis on Trillbillies. I'm pretty sure that's just the excerpts. Well, the excerpts like... There's a lot of things going on here, but one of them is like how clear who they're talking about is like these workers freed by the pandemic to work from home long term. These are office workers. These are like middle income managerial and professional people. This isn't like the barista at Starbucks or the Uber driver or the guy working at Elon Musk's factory or whatever. Like we're talking about this particular Mm -hmm. slice of like the top 20 percent who has the ability to just like up and move to like a nice place in the middle of nowhere. And then there's the part that, you know, you mentioned, isn't this just the excerpts? Yeah. I mean, I think it, 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 it allows this trend towards uh ex-urbanization we can call it i guess to only continue or and we know about all- rural gentrification is another way to think about it yeah definitely so i think that like this is another one of those economic trends you can see coming out of the crisis where some people do well and other people do like really bad <laughs> uh there was an article that came out about uh Toll Brothers, which is a luxury housing developer who, like, makes most of the McMansions and exurban, like, you know, half million dollar to two million dollar homes uh, all across the country. And they are having a banner year. This is their oh, best year say. in 30 years. They've sold more luxury houses to more people than they ever had before. Wow. So, again, <laughs> think about this double this dual track economy now where this is happening on the one hand in Bend, Oregon and in other exurban communities around the country. And yet 40 percent of Americans are facing an eviction like now. Right. This is the new world. This is what's coming towards us if nothing is done about it. Well, it's almost like uh, capitalism tends to concentrate wealth in the hands of the few as everyone else becomes more and more miserated. Well, and this is tied, I think, supercharged by the pandemic crisis, obviously. Exactly. Like these trends that existed are now being supercharged. And like, you know, we've talked about this on the on the show before when we've met, we've talked about um, immiseration theory and we've talked about surplus populations, right? That's stuff that we talk about all the time. It's part of our like collective crisis theory that we've put together over the years. But like um, there we're we could see a situation very soon. It's this isn't going to be like completely cut and dry where the top 20% of people, not the 1%, but top 20%, the kind of people who can move to Bend, Oregon and buy a million dollar house and like work trading stocks or something from their house, that 20% separating from the rest of us, uh, not just geographically, but also in terms of income, in terms of life opportunity, in terms of social power too, right? Because they're also a political base. Creating what is essentially 80% of the population, including us, of course, who are surplus populations, right? Mm, There's no help coming. 
Seems bad. I don't know. Yeah, it kind of ties back to what we were talking about with Aaron on our last episode, too, Aaron Beninoff, about the widening gulf between the averagely employed and the underemployed, or the mean and the median. Yeah. Basically, yeah. it's a gulf opening up in within the working class that, you know, all of these uh, capitalist uh, vampires rush in to exploit with, you know, very underpaid uh, service and gig work like Uber and the people who deliver you food and whatnot. Yep. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be good for working class solidarity, I will say. And like, I, I've read some stories too, because, you know, the media tends to focus on this, uh, this work from home class, shall we say, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of which, of which I am a part, I will admit, I've been doing my job remotely, and I feel very lucky to do so. Um, but they, they floated some, I mean, this is honestly making me like the idea that they floated of like taxing people who are working from home and using the money to um, help essential workers or whatever. But obviously, I don't trust the government to actually administer that in yeah. any kind of good way. Um, or <laughs> I saw an article, maybe it was in Bloomberg or something about how companies are considering uh, paying people less because they're like, well, they don't have oh, to live. Yeah. They don't have to live in the expensive city anymore. So why are, <laughs> why would we pay them so much? They don't have to commute anymore. Yeah. Like even the people who can work from home now, which like capitalists found very advantageous for itself for a lot of reasons. One of them is, yeah, you could pay people less. They don't have to commute anymore or live in expensive places where there's jobs. It's also great for capital because to the extent that people who work from home could organize themselves collectively, not even in a union, but like share the issues they're having with each other in the workplace. It completely destroys that. We've seen like separately, we saw how Amazon has hired the Pinkertons in order to spy on their workers through these social networks. Like now there's no way for anybody to talk to one another anymore. They're not physically in the same place. And that gives capital so much power. You know, in order to make what could potentially be like a collective bargaining situation into a war of one against all. Yeah, no, it's looking pretty bad. And I can't imagine that, um, you know, these work from home, averagely employed workers, uh, if if their status is diminished, that that's going to have any kind of good impact on the status of the underemployed people who serve them right now. No, not at all. And it's certainly not going to be good for U.S. politics because you've seen like what you were saying with the media portrayal of politics and certainly what politicians like Biden and even Trump talk about, like they're more and more uh, catering to this smaller section who thinks that things are OK. We're going through a tough spot right now and they understand. But like we're all going to get through this together and things were fine before the pandemic and they're going to be fine again as that becomes a, a smaller and smaller section of the American population, but becomes more and more important to keep some semblance of centrist politics together in the United States. The rest of us, the immiserated, are only going to have like less opportunity to press whatever advantages, small advantages we might have uh in the future so yeah oof. well this is a real downer episode man. sorry Shit. well hey here's some good news all right all right all right i've been reading about following this story a little bit in the news um did you know that workers at the amazon warehouse in alabama uh ah. have petitioned to unionize no i didn't know that in fucking alabama beautiful did you hear about the international wave of uh of uh, like 
work stoppages that happened from Poland to Germany to all over the world? I did. I did. The angry workers have been keeping me updated on it. Those good old angry workers. Folks, folks, follow the angry workers. Listen to the angry workers. The angry workers are keeping an eye on this stuff so you don't have to. Yeah, and they're making... yourself. Right in. They're making pamphlets that you can give if you know anybody who works at an Amazon facility, perhaps. Um, or just, if you work at an Amazon Or if facility. you work at an Amazon facility, they're giving pamphlets. They're making pamphlets you can distribute about the labor actions that are happening at other Amazon facilities. You know, I was talking a lot about the effects of this crisis on, uh, you know, monopolization and concentration of capital. I'm not being accelerationist. I'm just being a realist. But as a, as Amazon uh, and all of its various services and Jeff Bezos start to take more and more control over the distribution and sale of commodities in our society, it gives anybody who works at Amazon a whole lot of leverage. Because if all the other smaller competitors are going out of business and you have one large online retailer, well, God, if you could, you know, organize something there and you know stop the gears from turning boy you'd have a lot of power i tell you yeah no i mean i don't think anything that's happening right now is good for humanity but perhaps just maybe there will be some sort of progressive silver lining just like just like when marx said that it's progressive that capital is fully globalized or globalizing right because it's globalists it's an international it's an international fight, and um, you know, it, in a way, it unites workers all over the world if they're all working for the same shitty company. Um, and, we are seeing that happen. And maybe, uh, I mean, I guess small businesses are better than giant corporations by a tiny bit, maybe. But then again, they uh, can be just as shitty and exploitative. And yeah. it can be a much more personal and fucked up relationship of domination when you work you know, side by side with your boss at a small business and you're like kind of friends oh, yeah. with them versus... Oh, we're all family here. Versus if your boss is Jeff Bezos, you could just be like, fuck off, you obvious cool. <laughs> The, uh, you know, it's funny because on this show, we've said a lot that what is necessary, one thing that's necessary is for wage laborers to start organizing across borders. And I didn't anticipate, you didn't anticipate, none of us anticipated the pandemic and the, the great power that Amazon.com would have in order to like basically like move all the shit in capitalist society. Well, there you have it. Like we, it, something still needs to be done, but like now you have workers in 15 countries who all work for the same company who can communicate with each other and organize together. Capital has like gone some small way towards solving this problem for us. Like the internationalization of Amazon has allowed for the internationalization of workers' actions. Mm-hmm. And, and that could potentially turn into something really incredible. Yeah. Let me just read you a little statement from the workers at this uh, factory in Alabama. Yeah, Because I think it's um, very good. So just a few details. Blah, blah, blah. They've notified federal labor authorities of their plans to hold a unionization vote. Um, there was a filing posted by the NLRB saying Amazon workers at a fulfillment center outside Birmingham want to form a bargaining unit of all 1,500 full and part-time employees at wow. the facility to be represented by the retail, wholesale, and department store union. Such a filing typically... That's a lot. Yeah. It typically requires at least 30% of the workers signing paperwork to say they want a union. 
Um, it's one of Amazon's newer warehouses. It's blah, 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 lots of profits. Um, the petition does not list specific grievances, but a union-backed website calls for changes to procedures for firing, uh, disciplining, and safety. Quote, 19 workers have died at Amazon facilities Jesus since Christ. 2013. We face outrageous work quotas that have left many with illnesses and lifetime injuries. With a union contract, we can form a worker safety committee and negotiate the highest safety standards and protocols for our workplace. What do you wow. think? What do you think Amazon said about that? You think they were happy? Oh, I, I, I can't imagine they were particularly happy with that. So uh, you are correct. Um, they said in a statement. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> How would you know? Uh, they said in a statement that the company, quote, already offers what these groups claim they want. Touting its <laughs> We're just claiming. Pay. They're claiming they want a safe workplace. They're claiming they don't want to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if you didn't want to die, why, why'd you die? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> um, they regularly tout their minimum pay of $15 an hour which is actually not that good considering and which they only did under political pressure how from much Bernie shit Sanders costs. and others yeah and yeah. and i don't even think that it's company wide um but like that th- that's not the point because if you're dead it doesn't matter if you're making 15 dollars an hour um they said quote we don't believe this group represents the majority of our employees views our employees choose to work at amazon because uh. We, there should be some big old scare quotes around that word <laughs> because we offer some of the best jobs available everywhere we hire, which is just a, more of a damning comment than what kind of jobs are available, <laughs> I think, than any kind of like pro Amazon point in their favor. Uh, and, and we encourage everyone to compare our overall pay, benefits and workplace environment to any other company with similar jobs. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's like I, I'm a little pessimistic about this considering how many resources we know Amazon already puts into uh, smashing up any worker's ability to organize. And also because it's in Alabama, which uh, the South has traditionally been a very bad place to organize. And also because of the limitations that uh, even the sort of union that they could get has given uh, labor norms and regulation in the United States. But uh, well- it's certainly – Exciting to see. It's good to see it. Uh, but but ultimately, and this is where it gets interesting, is that if if they can win in Alabama, well, they certainly the people in uh, Poland or the people in India can compare what they have to what the people in Alabama have and vice versa. And it could internationalize itself very easily. But you don't have international unions really in this country or in the world. So that the real possibility maybe of seeing in the next five, 10 years, like workers in the same organization in different countries and different continents starts to become a real possibility. And that's a huge game changer. Uh-huh. Like that changes the scope of everything for us. It will be so good. I mean, isn't this an example, right? When we talked about the Janus decision um, and when we yeah. talked with angry workers about their experience um, in the bureaucracy of pre-existing unions, isn't this perhaps an example? Because Alabama is a right to work state, right? Um, of the the trade-off that occurs, right? Where you have, when unions have an officially recognized position, uh, yeah, sometimes they can do good things for the workers, but their hands are also tied in various ways. Like no strike clauses. (laughs) Yeah, whereas, you know, in a place where it's just kind of of, uh, every man's game, 
I, wild West. The, yes, that's that's what I was searching for. It's it is the Wild West of labor organizing. Um, people might actually come up with something more autonomous and radical than they would have otherwise. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That's what I'm thinking. I'm uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed on this. I'm finally we got some like potential good news on the episode today, but like. The, these are things that are absolutely necessary for the class even to have the ability to, like, retain what little we have right now, let alone move forward. So anything that, that tends in this direction, and we're only seeing, like, the inkling of, of it right now, is super important, not just obviously for them, but for all of us. Because the class, we're, we're stuck within national borders. Like, we can't do anything in just Alabama or New York or Bend, Oregon or whatever. It has to be internationalized. And it looks like like capital is providing the uh, the opportunity for us. Yeah, let's thanks capital. Let's take it. Let's take it thanks and run you, with it. Thanks, you two sided mode of production that both immiserates us but also gives <laughs> us the possibility to fight back and create a better world. Thank you. Oh man, that's talk about science. Immortal science. Mm-hmm. We believe in science here at the Antifada. Let's <laughs> All right. So uh, in other financial news, I have here an article from the Financial Times, the uh, our favorite ruling class mouthpiece that gives you uh, the down and dirty of uh, capitalist production because capitalists need it. You know, investors need it in order to make like real decisions about the their investments in capitalist society. So this article is called Uber Abandons Efforts to develop own self-driving vehicle. Oh, do you have a subscription to the Financial Times? Because I just tried to click the link and it was paywalled. Oh, I got a subscription. Oh, nice. What, you want my password? Kind of. All right, here it is. Ready? It's... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll give you the password. It's like It costs like $27 a month, but I find it really valuable if you're a communist. So Word. we should probably all have it. Um Anyways, Uber abandons effort to develop own self-driving vehicle. Mm-hmm. Car booking app transfers its technology at a marked down price to rival Aurora. This is by Patrick McGee and Dave Lee from yesterday. Uber has abandoned efforts to develop its own self-driving car, bringing to an end one of the most ambitious attempts to develop a fully autonomous vehicle. The ride-hailing company will instead swap its operations for a minority stake in Aurora, a driverless vehicle startup backed by Amazon and Sequoia at a significantly marked-down valuation. Uber took an early lead in the race to develop autonomous vehicle technology four years ago, leapfrogging rivals, including Google and Tesla, in pursuit of getting a fleet of self-driving taxis on the road. This is a big, this is a big however here. However, uh-huh. its efforts, its well, it's not that funny. Its efforts were marred by tragedy when a woman was killed in an accident involving one of the cars in Tempe, Arizona in 2018. And Uber's investors okay. have pressed the company to focus on getting its core car buying business to profitability. I rescind uh, my haha. Yes. No, it's, it's funny to see them eat shit, but uh, not funny to see a, a Tempe woman go down like that yeah yeah so this is very very interesting there's like a lot of angles to this they're not giving up as you said they're not giving up on like the future prospect of maybe doing the techno 
utopian thing of having cars that just whiz around by themselves and you just sit there and relax while your car takes you everywhere. You like order a car and an Uber shows up with nobody driving it and it takes you safely and efficiently to your location. They're not giving up on that per se, per se but they're like, we're going to let this take a back seat. We're going to let other people do it. This might be a little bit more than we uh, intended to bite off. I absolutely do not trust self-driving cars, especially under this very uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, <laughs> system that we're living in. I mean, would you fucking get in one of those things? No, no. Are you fucking nuts? The, the <laughs> thing is, is that is that the the either uh, Tesla or Google or Uber have been saying that we're like six months away from a self-driving car for like a fucking decade, man. <laughs> like, it really goes to show like this, like, like as you said, anarcho-libertarian capitalist futurist utopia that they're trying to imagine is actually really hard when you're not just like – you know, um, undercutting uh, taxi drivers when you're not just like making millions of people like underpaid independent contractors when you're not having people that just drive 60 hours a week in order to like do the upkeep on their car so they can keep driving Uber. If you're not just like eroding labor protections all over the country and all over the world and you actually have to do something, you actually have to put something real into the world, you know, put wheels down on the fucking road. Guess what happens? They eat shit well this was part two of their business plan right like i read an article by our friend aaron benanov benanov yeah. the guardian where he kind of explains it because it seems on its face very confusing that uber would not turn a profit despite you know providing an actual service that people sure. pay for and that people use a lot and despite having all that venture capital money just flowing into it but yeah. the reason is uh, is that it's not structured as a traditional uh, taxi business. Their business model is they get a ton of venture capital money. They make a bad bet, which we know now is bad, that they're going to have <laughs> uh, automation sooner than later. And they can get rid of sure. all those pesky humans who drive the cars. And yeah. they, which, which explains, I mean, besides them just being evil, why they want to pay their drivers basically nothing. And yeah, uh, they're disposable. Yeah. And, and like that is the that's that's the bet they made. And it's not working out for them. And now they have no. to deal with all of these human workers still. And they're like, oh, this this wasn't oh. part of our plan. But like it would be possible hypothetically. Like, I don't know. Maybe not. Like Sam had someone talking about this on Majority Report the other day saying like if Uber wanted to restructure themselves as actually a taxi company, that they could have a profitable business doing that. But uh, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm skeptical, I'm skeptical of that statement. The thing, the thing looks on the face of it like a grift. Like, let's be honest, right? Like a classic Ponzi scheme, right? More VC money going in to pay, you know, to, to pay for the operations themselves and never make you a profit. But I think in this case, as is so often uh, the case with this Silicon Valley, California ideology, they grifted themselves, right? These people are so good at like, grifting other capitalists and grifting themselves into believing this futurist vision that they can just absolutely change the world and they can automate people out of the way and 
put all these gadgets out in the world and everything's going to be running smoothly and efficiently. Like they had to believe that for themselves. They had obviously billions of dollars riding on it. And, um, I almost lost my mic there. And, um, it's funny cause they just passed that prop 22 in California, yeah. which, uh, made it so that workers will remain highly precarious, uh, independent contractors. Totally legal the- to make them live in a cage now. Yeah, pretty much. And like one of the ways that like uh, Yimby type, like maybe like market lib sort of like uh, globe emoji people were talking about it is that if Uber has the ability to make all this money, you know, now at this moment, they're going to do wonderful things for the economy when they definitely, certainly very soon are able to make self-driving cars Mm -hmm. like Allowing Uber to make all this money is like a research and development thing that unfortunately is on the backs of these independent contractors, but will work out great in the future for society because look at all the great gadgets and all the efficiencies that they're going to create. Turns out Prop 22 passes and then Uber's like, oh no, just kidding. <laughs> we're, just a, we're just a rip-off taxi company. We actually can't do anything about the future. Well, I mean, it's also weird because if you take them at their word... They're going to put all of the drivers out of business very fucking soon. So why would you argue? Why would you ever argue that Uber is good for workers or good for the economy when the jobs they do provide are meant to be ephemeral? Because that's progress. You know, these like gormless, bloodless fucking like econ dorks you know a lot of them are liberals they suck silicon valley's dick all the time because they take this propaganda at face value and they imagine a world where like you won't need any workers anymore but profits will be great and because silicon valley companies tech companies have such great philanthropic principles and because they're all like smart nerds that it's all going to work out in the end you know it's, it goes back to the conversation with aaron about uh ubi and shit like these people have really trick themselves into thinking that they are the future for humanity and a good future for humanity because they're nerds and they don't know how anything works. But because of the things that they're pushing in this society, they're some of the most dangerous fucking people that exist. These Silicon Valley people is not just because they flirt with, with fascism, although they do, they are dangerous to the future of this society because they are the ones that want us all as surplus population. They are the ones that want to progress us out of our lives, out of our jobs. And they, and they, and they put it this in a shiny, package and they say oh well this will make society great for everybody meanwhile they're just sucking the lifeblood out of tens of millions of workers all the time and it's just a giant fucking dangerous grift oh well it seems like at least sorry to rant there for a minute no by all means this is a safe space for rants um (laughs) it seems like at least some of them know that what they are doing is bad and that uh we are not heading for utopia Judging from that article that I forgot to post that we talked about on our last, seems like a lot of these fucking uh, nerd kings know at this point that things are probably going to end in a bad exterminist future kind of way, um, judging from how interested they are in questions like, how do I maintain control over my private security force? (laughs) But um, what I was going to say about the venture capital money Um, I mean, like VC money, it's not, 
I mean, I don't want to say it's smart, but it's like not stupid, right? These people understand. No. These people understand um, capitalism. They understand investments. They're on the they're, wrong. They're to make money. Like all of these technological dreams are on top of the very base material interest of like making a profit. Right, right? And, that comes first. And the fact that all of this VC money is flowing into these obviously harebrained ventures. I think just goes to show you that it's running out of places to go. Oh, yeah. Big time. It's like this this diseased kind of pseudo economy that exists on top of, uh, you know, the, the everyday workaday lives of production and distribution and wage labor and all that. It's like all of the, the, the technological futurism is like a fig leaf for this profiteering and labor arbitrage. But even that fig leaf is falling off and we're starting to see their dicks and they're starting to see their dicks uh, because like you can only keep that going for so long if the rate of profit is insufficient to like obviously keep on going as a capitalist. So they're going to start eating more and more shit. And the pandemic's interesting because like by all measures, by all indications, we should be in like an assets disaster right now. Like stocks should be through the floor. Bonds should be negative. Uh, Investment should be low. There should be like mass layoffs and shit. And the reason why the investing class, the capitalist class hasn't done that is because in a way, because of COVID, we're in like the suspended animation right now. It's like everything is paused and they're con- they've convinced themselves that there's going to be like a V-shaped recovery. And right when the vaccine is given out to enough people, things are going to go back to how they were before and all of their investments are going to pay off. And they're hoping against hopes that that's the case. But I think more and more of them are, are looking for the exit right now. Mm-hmm. And by the exit, we mean a bunker on Long Island. <laughs> yes. Or a, uh, an Elysium-type space shuttle. Mm-hmm. They want to get off this fucking planet. They don't want to be around us people anymore, that's for sure. I mean, but too bad, I mean... because we're not getting that either. So you're, just, you're stuck here with us. I mean, I, given, the op- given the chance or given the, op- the option to, like, boil in the seas and uh on this planet or like go be a servant for the ruling class in space i certainly know which one i'd pick but that's a that's an option i'd rather avoid having to take yeah well we just have to colonize mars and then take it over for communism and well you know earth is fucked probably but at least we could have space communism yeah. Well, we'll have to get our uh, advisor, Kim Stanley Robinson, on the line to tell us how it's all going to shake out. I don't know that I'm, I don't think that the planet is necessarily fucked. Like, I've had some dark times, especially in COVID over the last six months or so, looking at all of the uh, climate news, which is like Not really fucking good. bad. Not good. Um, but then I've also been comparing that to like the resiliency of humans that we've had for you know, a hundred thousand years. And, uh, I don't think, I mean, it's not looking good, but I, and I don't think that green eco capitalism is going to provide an exit ramp for us at all. But I also think that it's starting to become do or die time for the human species and the capitalists don't represent the human species. They represent this inhuman alien force of value. That's like sucking humanity dry as they destroy the planet. And, the the forces of humanity are the working class, are us. We are the only ones that are fighting for a planet that all of us can live on because we're fighting for a world beyond profits. We're fighting for a world of uh, community based not on capital, but based on 
communism. So I, I, I still hold out hopes. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, I'm not sure, honestly, if uh, the capitalist mode of production has the ability to solve the climate crisis. But if it doesn't, then we're going to be pretty fucked because this is coming in the next 10 years. I mean, this is what Chomsky said in his um, stupid thing about why you should vote for Biden. But (laughs) um, where was it going with this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very likely that if even if we ever manage to do the thing, we're going to have to figure out how to live in a hotter, wetter world. And I, I just don't see like I think capitalism could figure that out by just exterminating either actively or passively a whole bunch of human beings. But obviously that's not the ending that we want to see, right? Like I think there are lots of ways we could go about this, but you know, if if we were in charge, right? If the communists were in charge um, doing some (laughs) sort of uh, democratic re we're going to have to relocate a lot of people because there are places in the world where people cannot survive anymore and uh, we're, we're hitting all sorts of thresholds with the climate crisis, so that's probably not going to change. We're going to have to relocate people to new places. We're going to have to build a whole bunch of dense uh, housing for people to live in and maybe rethink the divide between urban and rural and what that looks like. So, like, there are all sorts of things that we can do in a yeah. collective care capacity, um, but... We have Not to have yeah. We have to have the power first to make these decisions. Yeah, yeah. Now maybe to end this episode out on like I don't know, like a sad note or just uh, I don't know. But like the hu- the the book of human history is long, <laughs> and we may be entering the most important chapter. Maybe not the final chapter, but like maybe that like into the third arc where everything changes, you know, I don't write shit, but you know, like that moment where everything kind of like hits at once and the characters got to fight their way through it. We're like kind of in that now. And it's frustrating because you see mainstream politics and you see the press and you talk to people in your day to day life to the extent that you can with the COVID crisis. And there doesn't seem to be the sense of urgency that we would need in order to do all the things you talked about to confront this. Um, But I don't think that that can last. I don't think that uh, that depoliticization uh, can last long. I think the capitalist class class is going to fight tooth and nail. The politicians are going to fight really hard to make sure that people aren't aware and people aren't uh, coming together to try to fight for a human future. But, uh, you know, I think, I think the situation, I think the there is a, a crisis imminent, maybe not a final crisis, but certainly a time when sitting still and complacently watching the world burn becomes not quite an option anymore. Yeah. So in conclusion, everyone vote for Joe Biden. Oh, wait, you are. Um, everyone vote for Joe Biden four years from now. And <laughs> understand science. Um, yes. Under say that you understand science um, and big back better. Big back better. Sounds good. All right, folks. Check us out on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash the Antifada. As Jamie said, tomorrow we're going to be switching, uh, switching, twitching with Tony Boswell from Minion Death Cult. We've got Jamie's going to be throwing together a sort of uh, 
like talk show variety thing that she's going to do quite frequently. Andy is uh, going to continue the kind of pop culture and news podcast thing that he's had. And I am going to be streaming grand strategy games while discussing world historic moments in human history. So Boom. a lot of good, exciting things to, to, to check out. A uh, big boom moment. So follow us on Twitch, and uh, we'll see you here, because we're not going anywhere, but we'll also see you there. Hell yeah. See you in the cloud. <laughs>